This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at cosmicpotato.com. We interrupt this program to annoy you and make things generally irritating. <laughs> Welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. We've got you covered with everything from Marvel to Star Wars. I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to take this time to explain my evil plan. Classic films, trivia games, and beyond. Come to the coast and get together, have a few laughs. Now, on with the show. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Hey everybody and welcome to Cosmic Potato, the Super Fan Talk Podcast. My name is Sean Ray and I spoil movies so you don't have to watch them. <laughs> John. Oh no, no, it was Boolin. Yeah, yeah. I apologize. I thought that what I was talking about was common knowledge. Apparently it wasn't. So, all right. So if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I can, on the last episode, I completely spoiled the new, uh, Mission Impossible. Uh, twist because of something that came out in the news a year a year ago and I thought everybody had heard it but apparently not everybody had heard it so uh, so I apologize for that but this week uh, we're going to continue in the classic movie series that uh, Troy and I have been doing over the last few months and bringing in uh, visitors here and there uh, we're we're watching all of the films on the 100 greatest movies ever made list by imdb so here to join me is troy from the world war g podcast how are you troy i'm good thank you uh you you, you finished the audiobook last week right i did yes that is finally complete <laughs> sweat off the brow <laughs> yes yeah. kind of a burden is finally gone yeah and from the simply syndicated network and friend of the show rick how are you sir greetings and from the Quantum Leap Podcast, Mr. Christopher DeFilippis, how are you? I'm doing great, but I prefer to be called the Ringo Kid. <laughs> Ugh, I wouldn't. <laughs> so uh, so we're going to do the next three movies on this list, and, and we're working down from 100. So uh, number 91 is The Great Dictator from 1940. Number 90 is Mutiny on the Bounty from 1935. And number 89 is Stagecoach from 1939. So we're going to talk about those three movies tonight, starting with uh, The Great Dictator from 1940, starring Charlie Chaplin, Paulette Goddard, and directed by Charlie Chaplin. And IMDb lists the, the plot as the dictator known as Hinkle tries to expand his empire while a poor Jew Jewish barber tries to avoid persecution from Hinkle's regime. So... Let's just kind of do a round robin and kind of go around the virtual circle and just see overall what everybody thought of the movie. I'll start with Troy. What'd you think yeah. of uh, The Great Dictator? I really enjoyed it. Um, I had I had seen. I'm sure we'll talk about it. I had seen that ending speech before because um, it's listed as like one of the greatest movie speeches of all time. So I'd seen it before, but um, now seeing the movie fully and also kind of seeing where we are in the world. I mean, the movie takes on a whole new meaning and there's just so much that you can 
Uh, it, it, there's a lot of layers to the film, and it it goes seamlessly from comedy to drama to silliness and back again. Just uh, it, it's so so, like I said, so seamlessly. And and man, it's it, it's it's really good. I I really liked it. Okay, Rick, what did you think? Go to me last, please. Okay, <laughs> all right, Chris, what did you think? <laughs> Well, it's not my first Chaplin film, um, but it was a weird experience because it's the first talkie that I've ever seen Chaplin in. And if I'm not mistaken, this was his first sound film. Yeah. And like Troy, making, I thought it, he was making silent movies after like when it wasn't cool anymore. Like he right, was still yeah. making silent yeah. movies when they weren't making silent movies anymore. And then the, yeah, this was the first one that he ever made that was a quote unquote talkie movie. Right. And. It, it was weird for that reason because, like Troy said, it was it was very prescient um, in in its message, especially in the times that we're in. But as bold as it was, as smart as it was, as witty as it was, it, it just didn't gel for me because it seemed like it had one foot in the silent era and one foot in the talky era. And I don't know that Chaplin was able to merge the two styles effectively or as effectively as he was trying in this so um good movie enjoyed it but um a lot of seams showed for me and uh we'll get more into it in the discussion yeah i mean overall i like the movie i i didn't know what to expect going in because tell you the truth i had never heard of this movie i had never seen a charlie chaplin movie before i mean i knew i know who charlie chaplin is or was um i, I kind of went in thinking i was going to be watching a silent movie making fun of hitler <laughs> but you know, as the, the the movie kind of unfolded, and we see um, the barber, you know, I thought we were kind of watching. We see the barber in like World War One, and I thought we were seeing a story about how Hitler rose to power or something like that, you know. And then all this slapstick started, and I found a, a lot of it funny. But I was, I started thinking to myself, I was like, we're watching this movie from another side of history than where the movie was made. Because when this movie came out, we had not, the U.S. had not even entered the war yet. Right. It just seems, it, it seems strange to me that this movie was made at the time that it came out, if that makes any sense. Because, um, it, it's almost like, uh, going back, thinking back to 9-11, a lot of people before 9-11 did not know what Al-Qaeda was. You know, because they didn't really pay attention to news that didn't affect them. And then 9-11 happened, and then it affected everybody. So I kind of wonder if the world was the same way in 1940, and nobody's really paying attention as much to what's going on on the other side of the planet. So when they see this movie, if it, if they were getting a lot of what, what he was trying to make a parody of, if that makes any sense. But overall, I mean, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was, I thought it was a, a well-made film. And I, I see, Chris, I agree with what you were saying. All the stuff with the barber seemed like he was still making a silent movie because that <laughs> character is pretty silent. And then yeah. all the stuff with Hinkle. Although I did, I did get a laugh kind of watching, basically you're watching Hitler and Mussolini kind of <laughs> doing the <laughs> doing the whole uh barber chair thing going up 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 you know that, yeah that was kind it reminded of reminded me of bugs bunny cartoon and, yeah yep. exactly yeah yeah but so. as, as bold as that was that was the part that i found the most strained about the movie that's when the comedy became 
just like, okay, we get it. it. It just went on and on and on and on on this sort of this one note joke about what buffoons these guys were. And I know that's what Chaplin was going for with the double cross and, you know, just the fact that they're two idiots and immature and morons. But I, it, it was, it was overkill. And I expect, like for Chaplin, he was such an auteur to know when to quit, to know when to leave him laughing. And in this, it's it's like he, he didn't really have that rhythm. And I don't know if it was because he was experimenting with sound for the first time in his style. Yeah. But I've seen other Chaplin films that have no talking in them, and they're absolutely brilliant. They're ten times better than this one, I'll tell you that. In, in his okay, so I've never seen any of his silent films like uh, the 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 Tramp and the Kid. You know those those, those films were they as long as this? I mean, were they like no. two hour movies? Or they're no. like yeah, that's why that's what I was thinking. I was like, it's almost like he was uh, trying to fill time. You know, so he put a lot of like you said, Bugs Bunny cartoon. Like like the movie is kind of made up of shorts. You know, and then, and then, and then, and then put them all together and make an overall film. And then this film is almost right at the two hour mark, like two hours and five minutes or something like that. So yeah, when, uh, I, when I saw that running time, I was shocked because I left this one for last, figuring it would be the shortest. Yeah. <laughs> it's the longest. <laughs> Go ahead, Rick. What would you, what'd you think? Okay. I've got, I've got to set a bit of a scene here because, you know, I can't just give it an, a simple answer. <laughs> um, now I'm, I, I know I'm older than Sean. Am I older than uh, you other guys? If you're older than Sean, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, um, if, if you were born before 1970, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm. I'm uh, yeah. I'm. I'm uh, all a good five, six, seven years older than you guys. More with Sean. <laughs> <laughs> now Troy's the youngest among us. Yeah. I'm, oh. Okay. Yeah. I am. <laughs> and I think this might make a difference i'm not entirely certain uh, i've been trying to figure it out tonight I'll, I'll all right i'm gonna come clean i didn't get through the movie um i only made it about 10 minutes into i, I made it to the scene where where the the soldiers were throwing tomatoes at the girl okay um That's the first very, that doesn't seem like it's that seems like it was pretty early in the movie yeah no it was it was about it was it was about 30 or 40 minutes in the oh, first okay. half hour is is world war one and that that was yeah. fine uh, you know, I was like, okay, I see a lot of Mel Brooks where Mel Brooks got some of his ideas. I saw a lot of Bugs Bunny. You know, it's, it's clear where, where, uh, Fritz Freeling and, and, uh, Chuck Jones got some of their ideas. Um, yeah, Chris, what you were saying about it being awkward, I was also shocked at that. Cause yeah, cause, you know, no one would ever accuse Chaplin of being subtle, but he was also not one to hammer a joke into the ground. Like that whole flying scene. Was just like get over and and the the Hitler speech. That was when I first said there is something going wrong with this movie because it just, it didn't end. Uh, yeah. We get it. It's, it's it's parody. We get it, Charlie. But you can move on now. Well, because but, he ad libbed all that stuff. I think that's why it drug on so much because he ad libbed all that. That none of that fake German that he was saying was in the script. He was making it all up as he went. Yeah, and that was a you know that was a thing that came down from vaudeville. Uh, you know, uh, Danny Kay was big into into doing the pretend foreign languages and stuff like that. I, you know, I get that, but it just went on and on and on. But the reason I asked about ages and uh, when I was in uh, sixth, sixth and seventh grade, uh, we studied the hell out of the Holocaust, and not just 
this is something that happened. Here are some statistics. I mean, movies of bulldozers pushing bodies into pits and shit like that. Um, and then I moved to Florida. Uh, this was in Connecticut. Okay, so you know we studied this in depth. Uh, you know, this would have been nineteen seventy five, six, something like that. Um, then we moved to Florida, and I don't know if y'all are, are familiar with the demographics of South Florida, but there's probably more Jews in South Florida than there are in New York, given the time of year. Mm-hmm, if you, if yeah. you, you know, when you check in, so you know. I'm, I'm steeped in the Jewish culture down there, too. And then in 1978, NBC runs a miniseries called Holocaust. And they sent study materials to the schools. I was in junior high at the time. And so we had to watch the show. Uh, and then we discussed it in school the next day and did, you know, had worksheets and stuff. So I am intimately familiar with the Holocaust. And it has been a major part of my life as a Gentile, which is, you know, you know, I don't know if that really makes a difference, but I am more immersed in the Holocaust as a Gentile, I think, than most because of just because of where I grew up, you know, and mm-hmm. had lots of Jewish friends. And, you know, and it's just, you know, I up until I married my wife, who's a Baptist, I probably knew more about Judaism than I did Christianity. Um so it's not a remote thing. It's not just something that happened in history books to me. So trying to, you know, like, I can't really cope with it uh, much anymore. Like, I've never seen Schindler's List. I've never seen The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Uh, you know, I've I've dealt with it in theater when I've had to uh, because it's my job. But... I know what happened. I've seen it. I've seen more of it than I ever want to see. I will never forget it. I don't need more. I don't need to see more about it. I dig what Chaplin was going for. Um, but once it got out of the World War One stuff and started getting into, uh, like, in the ghetto. And, yeah. you know, I know, it, I know it's satire and I know he was making a point. But also, in his 1964 autobiography, he said if he had had a clue what was really going on in Germany and Poland mm-hmm. uh, at the time, he wouldn't have made that movie. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's part of what I was saying that we're, we're looking at it from the other side of history. When this came out in 1940, mo- nobody really knew what was happening. I mean, they just knew what they saw in newsreels when they went to the movies and yeah. what they saw in the yeah. newspaper. We didn't know until really the war was over. It just how big the Holocaust was and exactly what had happened. And know? a lot of people still don't get it. It's it, was it yeah. was it Stalin who said if you kill ten people it's a it's a crime. If you kill a million it's a statistic or something like I forget who said that and I know I'm I'm destroying it, but it's you know, people couldn't wrap their heads around what happened. Right. Um yeah. and so I just I could not cope with watching a movie that was parodying even though I'm sure at the time it was important to, you know, that, that was probably more than people knew about it. Um, like you said, the U.S. wasn't even in the war yet. Mm-hmm. So I think this was an important movie. I don't disagree with it being on the list. Uh, I just don't think it's – one, what I saw wasn't that great. And two, I don't know that it's necessarily a movie that I need to watch. Okay. Can can I elaborate a little bit on what on what Rick is saying? Yeah. Um Rick, I have a somewhat 
similar experience the holocaust um it's it's by osmosis ever since we've been dating and my wife and i have been together about 30 years now she has been a student of the holocaust it's just a part of history that has always fascinated and intrigued her and i do my podcast from my library um Half of our library is hers, half is mine. I'm probably sitting in a Holocaust library that rivals or surpasses most Holocaust centers because she's been collecting Holocaust books for the last 30 years. And I know a lot about it, and I've seen all the movies, and I I know exactly what was going on. And it struck me that way, too, that it was farcical, but then I realized that the movie came out in 1940. To, to Chaplin, the concentration camps were really just work camps. Nobody knew yeah. what was going on. And to to publicly hold up a despot and a dictator, a fascist, and to call them out as the buffoons that they are is one of the greatest powers of satire and one of the greatest powers of film. And you also have to remember in that time, anti I would say like propaganda. I I did a project when I was in journalism school about the way the U.S. used propaganda during World War II to dehumanize the Japanese and the Germans and the Italians. And um, it was it was Frank Capra that did a whole series of films called Why We Fight. And he's on that thing saying, you know, Hitler, uh, he, he looked like Charlie Chaplin. Mussolini was a clown. You know, they were so easy to lampoon Mm. and they 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 were just buffoons. So it was also part and parcel of the way they approached things back then was to make the enemy laughable, if not subhuman. It was more laughable when it came to the Italians and the Germans. And then with the Japanese, they they basically made them into something other than human, just these deep. Be as sly creatures. Yeah. So it's you, you have to look at this film in the context of the time in which it came out, and it was sort of right on par with that kind of filmmaking that was going on. And you got to realize that Hitler was also one of the first people to use mass media to get his message across. I mean, you had Leni Riefenstahl making uh, you know a film about the Third Reich. What was it called? I wanna. God, why am I? Oh, this? I, but I anyway, know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, but it. Um, it was Triumph of the Will yeah. was the name of this film that she made. They glorified the Third Reich and how it was going to go on forever. And I think that seeing something like this would make uh, a filmmaker, filmmaker like Chaplin. I don't know if Chaplin, Chaplin was Jewish, but the fact that he called out he the persecution British, of the Jews, he, he was British. Yeah. But that okay. doesn't mean he wasn't Jewish. He yeah. may have been Jew- so, Jewish as well, yeah. But yeah. the fact that he so blatantly called out the persecution of the Jews – and you know had even even german characters dissenting in the film the pilot that that his character met whose whose life he saved mm-hmm. became a pariah because he said your your policies are foolish because they rely on the persecution of innocent people and i i understand exactly where chaplin was coming from and for that i admired the film and it probably made me with this broader historical knowledge thanks to my wife and some of the studies that I've done, it, it made me appreciate it more because I could place it into its proper context. But as a film, I still don't think it was that great. I don't think it worked all that well. Yeah, because, you know, the, the the subject matter notwithstanding, by the time he was done with that Hitler speech, uh, I was like, 
is it going to be another two hours of this? <laughs> yeah, I was afraid of that too. Well, they did a lot of you know making the the soldiers. They made the soldiers seem a lot like Keystone cops because uh, really the worst thing that you see the soldiers do to anybody is throw tomatoes at them. You know, they they they're tripping over themselves and they're getting hit in the head with pots and pans and slapstick stuff. All the way. And really, the the thing that I thought that the movie was going to be about didn't happen until the end. Because I thought we were getting like a retread of like the Prince and the Popper. I thought they were going to swap places. So did I. I. I really thought it was going there too, Sean. Yeah. And it did. I mean, it, it did. It did happen, but not until the very last scene of the of the film. Um, which, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that that was that was strange that they set up the the whole fact that the barber and this Hinkle character look exactly alike, but but we're not going to do the whole switcheroo kind of thing. I guess Chaplin just really wanted to play two parts. I don't know, but <laughs> but, uh, but Troy, you wanted to talk about the final speech. Um, listen to what you guys were saying. Uh, here's here's what I'll say about that. Um, I really liked the movie clearly more than everybody else um, <laughs> because I think the greatest weapon that people that especially comedians have like Chaplin is to uh, is 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 satire is to make fun of the thing that we're terrified of because that takes its power away from it and that's why I think it was it it worked so well for me um, because like you guys were saying they they turned Hitler and, and Mussolini into into clowns, into mm-hmm. these buffoons, you know, um, pretending at, at ruling the world. And and I I think that was just such um, an an important message and a, a way to shine a, a light on these things. Um, but as and then he so we go through the the movie and you know you see that it, it can be it goes through periods of being dramatic goes through periods of being um, kind of silly goes through comedic periods and then you get to that final speech and it becomes so deadly serious. A lot of the time, Chaplin is looking straight into the camera when he's talking about people rising up, people not putting up with this sort of um, uh, rise to power. Don't put up up with dictators. Don't be a sheep. You know, um, so many times, you know, there, there was a part in the film where uh Hinkle needed a loan to start to invade another country, but the banker he was going to was Jewish, and so he said, Okay, well for right now, let's put an end to the persecution of the Jews until we can get this loan. And so all of a sudden people were nice to the Jews, and then when it when it didn't happen, he went back to it, and people then turned on a dime that they're all of a sudden against the Jews again. And that sort of thing that sort of flipping back and forth happens and it's happening right now it's happening today yeah and it that that's what struck me so deeply about that is the parallels 
that I'm that we're 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 seeing um, currently, and and that's why I like that ending speech so much is is because he's telling people don't put up with this. You have the power to change it. Rise up, um, take back your power. You you are the ones that can do it. You know, dictators. They'll have the power for a, a while, but then they'll die and the power will go back to the people. I mean, it's just such a great message. And that's why, that's why I really like this film. Yeah, it w- I mean, it was a great speech. I even, I even, uh, recorded the speech onto an MP3 just so I could go back and listen to it again. Mm-hmm. But the only, the only thing that struck me about it was that the character that was saying it, had not said more than three words <laughs> right yeah the, at, at one time the entire movie and then all of a sudden he's putting all these thoughts together like on the spot yeah and, he, and addressing the nation yeah know? so yeah. that that it kind of took me out of it a little bit but but yeah and, and I think what I read was that he that wasn't the way the movie was supposed to end the movie was supposed to end with the soldiers doing a song and dance number and oh. uh he changed the ending because of uh, the invasion in France i think that happened while they were filming and mm-hmm. so he and so he wrote that speech and he changed it and it was a famous speech even in his time because he uh he would go on the radio every year or so and give that speech again people would invite him to come places to give that speech you know wow so well you know i i was i was thinking about this <clears throat> Back in the in the back in the day, I don't I don't know if it's so much anymore. But you know, every every star, especially the comedians, had a buzz a catchphrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that people you know and and for some reason people love to hear famous people say a thing, which I've I've never quite understood. You know, I I I did uh, I worked Mandy Patinkin's one man show a couple of times, uh, and. You know he does he does show tunes he he spends three hours on on stage singing show tunes and the audience loves it, but the time they go insane is that one moment out of three hours where he stops <laughs> and he says hello, and mm. everyone loses their minds and then he says the my name is Inigo Montoya, um you know and and it's like this dude's career is so much more you know the Princess Bride is wonderful but it's so much more than that one line. And yet, you know, you'd see Jackie Gleason on, on, you know, on the old Johnny Carson show, and he always, always have to say how sweet it is and stuff like that. Um, That's why Wallace Shawn won't say inconceivable. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure he is so effing sick of that he could die. Right. <laughs> um, so that had to be great for Chaplin, in that you know his his <laughs> the one thing anybody ever wanted him to say was that speech, and I have seen that speech dozens of times. Without having watched the movie, and Troy, you're right; it, it's amazing. Um, but I think to to what Chris is saying, you know, and admittedly, I'm extrapolating because I, you know, I freely admit I didn't watch the whole movie. That speech doesn't lose anything for not having watched the ninety or the you know the the hundred and fifteen minutes before it. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, it kind of does. It kind of doesn't. It has a little bit more impact in the context of the movie because you do see the persecution does get somewhat 
not really hardcore, but hardcore as hardcore as this movie gets um, in the later half. It, it really does like the comedic edge kind of disappears, especially when they're it's almost like the night of broken glass when they're clearing the ghetto and the the Jews are, are basically fleeing to the what was the nearby said ostrich area or whatever. I don't I don't even remember the weird names that they gave them. But yeah, and they, they found this idyllic paradise on a farm where they, they weren't persecuted until um, the Hitler character invaded and yeah. it. You know, then once again, it went right back to the stormtroopers coming in and cleaning house. And it it did have a little bit more of an impact as the film went on, because you saw that I think Chaplin was trying to keep it as a comedy and keep it so that it was parodying and ridiculing those leaders. But he was also trying to show with the limited knowledge that we had just what a horrible thing was happening, how, how real all of this was and no matter how you try to escape if you don't stop these forces they will just keep growing and growing and i think that in that context when he turns around and he says we all need to reach out to each other in brotherhood and love and come together against this kind of stuff it was a way for him to say all this problem transcends germany this problem transcends borders this is something in the human condition that we need to fight constantly and to always address. And you're not going to do it by fighting back. You're going to do it by banding together in love so these people don't have a foothold. Yeah. So, I mean, that it, for, I've never seen that speech. This is the first time I'd ever seen that. So it, it had a lot of impact to me because for a movie that I really wasn't digging – and why I was thinking, okay, now I understand why in humanities in high school they showed us modern times and saved the war satire for Duck Soup because Duck Soup is a million times better as a war satire movie. But then I saw that speech and I said, okay, now I know why this movie's on the list. Hmm. Yeah, and, and like I said, I don't, I don't begrudge it being there, you know. One of the movies we're going to talk about tonight, I question its position, its being on the list. But this one, I I don't. Uh, it just it just wasn't something I felt the need to watch all of. Well, what Troy? What uh, kind of what rating do you give this movie? Um, out of uh, out of five, um, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it probably four because I, I ran through the, the the gamut of emotions with this. I laughed out loud in a few parts. Um, it made me stop and think in, in a few parts. Um, and it was just – there. there's just not a whole lot of negative I could say about it. Okay. All right. Chris, what about you? Hmm. I'm going to give it probably two and a half, um, putting it in its context historically and as an important film that gives it a lot of merit. But compared to Chaplin's other works and just as a film within itself, I think it, it, it doesn't hold up to some of his better stuff. And I think the film had some, you know, just uh, some problems. It was it was a bit uneven in places and a bit belabored in places. So I think straight down the middle, two and a half. What about you, Rick? Uh, I, I don't know that I can necessarily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I thought the first thirty minutes was was okay, 
You know, there were so, there was some there were some moments of genius. I, I loved his deadpan delivery. I was impressed that he could speak. You know, a lot a lot of silent film stars their careers went to hell when when talkies came in because they had like speech impediments or or just couldn't couldn't sound conversational when they when they said lines or stuff like that. Uh, my, you know, when the plane's upside down and he's hanging on to the joystick and hanging out of the cockpit, and I th- I think the 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 pilot says something like you know take my hand and he just goes not right now <laughs> it's just like, that delivery was beautiful um so you know i i but you know and for historical importance certainly you know i i a three and if you are not someone who has been uh steeped in holocaust lore and world war ii lore uh, or if you're not familiar with satire, or if you like couldn't make it through Doctor Strangelove, maybe this would be a good like gateway film to political satire. Uh, so you know, I think three for for is yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I give it three and a half. I mean, I enjoyed the movie. There was a lot of stuff that I that I laughed out loud. I did like um, his delivery uh, of certain lines because. He would deliver lines so quickly after somebody would say something that you really had to listen to even catch the joke. You know, it's like, uh, "How's the gas?" <laughs> he said, and he says, "Oh, it kept me up all night." You know, yeah. <laughs> you know that kind of stuff in the middle of a war movie. You know, uh, I, I, I thought was great, but I, I do recommend the movie. I think that you have to remember that you're looking at it from this side of history, and that. At the time, we didn't know what was going on in the Holocaust and stuff like that. So, if 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 you watch it without realizing that, then you may think that they're being a little lighthearted with some really really heavy, you know, stuff. But he didn't know. I mean, he, he yeah. didn't know what was happening. So, um, and like you said, he said later on in life that he wouldn't have made the movie if he had known. Um, okay, so I've got some facts some things uh, about the movie that I looked up. Uh, Adolf Hitler banned this movie in Germany and in all the other countries that were occupied by the Nazis. Curiosity got the best of him, and he had a print brought to him through uh, Portugal. History records that he screened the movie twice in private, but history did not record what his reaction was. (laughs) So Charlie Chaplin said, I'd give anything to know what he thought of it. Uh, for well, he watched it reasons. twice. So. Yeah. <laughs> for political reasons in Germany, the ban stayed until the after the end of World War II until 1958. Um, this movie was entirely financed by Char- Charlie Chaplin himself, and it was his biggest boss, box office hit. According to documentaries on the making of the film, uh, Charlie Chaplin began to feel more uncomfortable lampooning Adolf Hitler the more he heard of Hitler's actions in Europe. Ultimately, the invasion of France inspired Chaplin to change the ending of his film to include the famous speech. In 19, at the 1940 Academy Awards, the film received five nominations. However, it failed to win any Academy Awards, and Charlie Chaplin was hurt by this. He, he already had spent 27 years in Hollywood. Jimmy Stewart was uh, the winner of the Best Actor Award for which Chaplin was nominated, was not even planning on going to the ceremony until someone told him to go there just a few hours before it started. Uh, and this was the first year that the uh, winners of the awards be- remained secret until they actually uh, announced it. 
Charlie Chaplin said wearing Hinkle's costume made him feel more aggressive, and those close to him remember him being more difficult on days that he was shooting as Hinkle. Uh, the German spoken by the dictator is complete nonsense. The language in, in which the, the shop signs, posters, etc. in Jewish quarter were written in Esperanto, a language created in 1887. Uh, Char- Charlie Chaplin wrote the entire script in script form except for the fake German, which was improvised. And he also scripted every movement in the globe dance sequence. <laughs> <laughs> oh. and, Another part that was uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, during filming, Charlie Chaplin and Paulette, Paulette uh, Goddard were married uh, in in like real life. Uh, during filming, his relationship with her began to deteriorate, uh, but both tried very hard to save it. In 1942, Chaplin proudly introduced her as my wife a position that was always considered sketchy at a New York engagement. But within months, they were amicably divorced and notoriously finicky Chaplin agreed to a generous divorce settlement. In the 1960s, both Chaplin and Goddard were living in Switzerland, but having made no contact, they spotted each other at a cafe, had lunch together, and it was their last meeting. Mm. So... Okay, before we move on to our next movie, let's take a break, hear a word from a couple of other shows that you can hear on the network, and we will be right back. We'll return after these messages. Hey, you listener. Do I have everybody's attention now? Do you like professional wrestling? What? If so, you'll love Review Mania, where Rob and Zach break down every WrestleMania. You'll hear about great epic matches by the likes of Hulk Hogan. And what you gonna do when Hulkamania and the largest arms in the world run wild on you? Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, yeah! Ric Flair. Just stealing! Woo! Wheeling, dealing! Limousine right! Jet flying! Son of a gun! Bret Hart. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be! Shawn Michaels. Bret Hart, you are a zero, my hero. John Cena. The champ is Cena! Brock Lesnar. Suplex City, bitch. And so many more that I don't have time to even name. Check out Review Mania right here on CosmicPotato.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spreaker. It's a happening right here on CosmicPotato.com. Arriba! Hey everybody, I'm Troy. And I'm AJ. And we are the hosts of the World War G podcast, along with Colton, but he's not here right now. Yes, yeah, so pay no attention. Uh, and we're a podcast about everything geek. We talk about uh, movies, television, video games, comic books. Uh, we got movie commentaries, the occasional taste tests, like these lovely pina colada Oreos. Just don't try the Coke ones. No. Dang, what do we say after that? <laughs> Dang it. Um, so oh, okay. I'm, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can find us right here at CosmicPotato.com or at WorldWarG.Podbean.com. Or wherever else you get your podcasting fix. And as always, stay geeky, my friends. Hi, this is Virginia Hay, and you're listening to Cosmic Potato. Okay, we're back. So the, our next movie is Mutiny on the Bounty, starring Charles Lawton, Clark Gable, Franchot Tone, 
I I know I butchered people's names. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in Central Alabama. <laughs> Directed by Frank Lloyd. So IMDb has this listed as a tyrannical ship captain decides to exact revenge on his abused crew after they form a mutiny against him, but the sailor that he targets had no hand in it. So I would just like to say, before we go any further, I didn't look at the list before you said where I, I assumed this was in chronological order. Mm-mm. This movie no. being at number 90 out of a hundred is, is criminal. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so many great movies. No. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine that if you, have you looked at the list yourself? No, not yet. I think if you if you looked at the list, you your head would probably explode. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when they start putting the Tarantino stuff on there, I can just imagine. <laughs> but uh so this movie was kind of sort of based on stuff that actually happened in real life, but not entirely. <laughs> I mean, they took some liberties. Yeah, they yeah, a few. <laughs> but uh so the HMS Bounty. So that, okay, so Clark Gable, the, the only other movie that I've ever seen that had Clark Gable in it was uh Gone with the Wind. You actually made it through that movie? Yeah, I've seen Gone with That's the Wind a impressive. few times. <laughs> I mean, I, I I've never even tried. <laughs> oh, really? Gone I'm, with the I'm Wind in is the not camp on that. <laughs> Gone with the Wind is not a bad... Well, I don't know if it's on the... It may be on this list. I don't know. What it, it, is. it is. Okay. Well, we'll talk about it eventually. <laughs> I might be sick for that joke. <laughs> but... Um, I, I don't think it's bad. It's just... It's like 14 hours long, right? It's about three and a half. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty long. They have a screening of it at the big... Like our old 1920s style theater that's in town that's been around forever. They screen it every year, so I've been there a couple of times to for that. But anyway, uh, Mutiny <laughs> on the Bounty. So, all right, let's just go back around the table. Uh, Troy, what did you think of Mutiny on the Bounty? Um, I I thought it was good. I thought it was entertaining. Uh, I always like me a, a, a big ship movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I I. It seemed – I don't know if it was because I'm not familiar with uh, maritime law back then or anything like that. But it, some of the things they were doing seemed um, historically interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, the with the rowing the boats to get the wind or – I don't know if that was a real thing they did. But, um, but yeah, I, I found it absolutely watchable and, and it was pretty entertaining and I think – Clark Gable never should have grown the mustache. I think it looked better without it. I didn't know what they were doing in that scene. <laughs> when they rode the boats out and they said they're going to get the wind or something. Oh, like, I didn't well, know. Well yeah, they were they, were, they understand that. They, a sailboat doesn't move if the wind isn't blowing. Right. And they didn't well, yeah, have motors they could turn on, so, so you but, had uh, to pull uh, the boat out a, of the doldrums. You can't get a little dinghy to go out and collect wind and bring it back. No, no they were no, towing they're the boat. They're pulling the boat somewhere where there is wind. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so think of them like tugboats, trying to get them to a place where the sails can start to furl again. Oh, okay. But it's like two dunklings trying to haul a swan. Look at me using improper (laughs) naval terms. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. Rick, what did you think? I loved this movie. I uh, Okay. I've seen two other versions of, of Mutiny on the Bounty. I saw the the uh, the television version with Marlon Brando uh, when I was a kid, 
and I all I the only thing I remember about it was I think it was Fletcher Christian. I think he dies at the end of this, at the end of that one anyway. I, I know yeah. that it was in my research for this. It was critically panned. It was, but I the only thing I clearly remember about it was uh, Christian dies with his eyes open, and my. I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, however old I was self was, I remember asking my mother, his eyes are open. You don't. And she explained to me that sometimes people die with their eyes open. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure that was a fun conversation for my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, you know, I saw the, the Mel Gibson movie bounty, which I enjoyed a lot. Not necessarily for the story. Uh, <laughs> let's just say I find Polynesian women very attractive, and that movie <laughs> was uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I had never seen this before, and so uh, I watched it last night, and I was a little worried because I've, I, I, you know, I've always had this like image in my head of Charles Lawton as just being a total douchebag. Um, and that is completely based on nothing more than Bugs Bunny cartoons. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, so, you know, I really haven't seen a lot of his movies and I wasn't sure what to expect. It was, you know, it's two hours and five minutes long. So it's not like this is a, a small investment of time as far as movies go. Um, but, it is magnificent. I absolutely enjoyed every minute of it. Now, there's a lot of minutes. There was, a, I was I, at one point, I had to stop and, and get up and stretch my legs and went out. And my and my wife was like, "How's it going?" I'm like, "This is a great movie, but damn, it's long." <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, you know the 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 ship was amazing. The acting incredible. The effects, you know, what few effect shots there seemed to be were really well done. Uh, I, I re- you know, there's, I really don't have much bad to say about this film. I really enjoyed watching it. Okay. All right. Chris, what'd you think? Everything Rick said. Um, Charles Lawton is just a boss in this film. He is amazing <laughs> in this film. And I didn't uh, know how it was going to end. I, I assume we can talk spoilery. But, oh yeah, yeah. 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 The fact for when, a seventy-something-year-old yeah. movie, yeah. <laughs> when the mutiny on the bounty happened and they put them in that open boat, I really expected they were all just going to die at sea. And the fact that um, you know Bly was able to get them to land, at, what was it, a thirty-five hundred-mile trip? That's based on historical fact. That is freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was really taken aback by that. That's when the movie kind of came alive for me because. I enjoyed just about everything about it. Like Rick said, the acting from top down was terrific. The characters were terrific. But at the same time, the movie never really coalesced for me. There was not like a sense of urgency to the plot when um, when Bly was being all of the or having all of like the midshipmen and just whoever, you know, keel hauled and, and whipped and whatever for, for no reason other than he was a petty tyrant. I never got that that righteous, you know, indignation about it. It it was just happening in the movie. And then they had the mutiny and then this and then that. And it never it never got like like a narrative urgency for me. So and I don't know why, because everything about it was excellent. It, it's 
I'm going to compare it to Spider-Man Homecoming, a movie that did everything <laughs> exactly right yet failed to engage me for some reason. And that that's what this was. But, I mean, just, just the scope and the the cinematic scope of it was was amazing. So I would recommend this one, this one highly. And I'm glad I got to watch this because I I saw it on Turner. Since you guys started doing this podcast, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on Turner and I'm, I'm taping movies that I think – might be on the list and i knew the great dictator was going to be and it just happened to be on like two days after we talked about it so i i put it on the dvr and i had a nice clean copy of that this one was on a couple of weeks ago and i said should i tape that nah i don't know if i'm going to be on if they're going to have me on talking about it i don't know where it is on the list and here we are now and i'm kicking myself because i had to watch like a vhs rip on vimeo uh, <laughs> a version the, that had the arabic subtitles it had Arabic subtitles. That's the exact one I watched. <laughs> and I it was I... still it was still amazing. It was like the crappiest quality, but it was still so good. <laughs> I, I splurged and, and paid the two ninety nine for Amazon on Amazon to rent it. <laughs> does yeah, the four K uh, do it more justice? No, I, I know that that was the the I you know I generally don't bother with HD because uh, our our HD TV is eight years old and doesn't really. It's not really all that much different. Uh, so when I'm renting movies on Amazon, I generally just go for the the, the standard definition because it doesn't make that big of a difference. And when they, I, it was like, you can get this in HD. I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this one I would have loved to have seen in HD. But it's not it's, HD. It's you know. It's, no, but the thing is, still. if you when you have uh, film stock like that, like you know, like like real film stock, you can render things into HD. You can get a much clearer picture. Yeah, so it would still be pretty grainy to me. I don't know. I have done it. I I rented it on Google Play for like I think it was a dollar ninety nine. Maybe it may have been two ninety nine, something like that. But yeah. It wasn't much. <laughs> it was better than watching it with Arabic subtitles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you stop noticing them after a while. <clears throat> but uh I okay, I enjoyed this movie quite a bit, but I really enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to because I kinda judged it. I was not really looking forward to watching it because I'm not a big, like, naval boat movie guy, you know? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I watched some pirate movies and stuff, but this wasn't really a pirate movie. Um, but it turned out, I mean, it was a, it was a really good movie. It was enjoyable and it, it piqued my interest enough to go and dig up some of the actual history, which, I mean, we'll talk about, we'll compare it to the, the actual events a little bit here in a minute, but, um, I think that maybe if they had actually put more British people in this movie, it would have been better because they were supposed to be British officers. You know, <laughs> Clark, Clark Gable is the least British person they could have found for, the, for this. But uh, you know what? He wasn't as bad as Kevin Costner. Really? Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen that version. So, well, no, no, no. I, I, did you ever see Robin Hood Prince? Of oh yeah, Peace? Robin Hood. Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Costner's they didn't even lack try. of being British really stood out. Yeah. Uh, in this one, you know, I, I think. The the nineteen thirties there's there's a word for the way they talked in movies at that time. Oh, it's, um, yeah, it's that fake like Eastern that transatlantic accent. Yeah, yeah, and it it worked. You know, I, I didn't I didn't spend the whole movie going, why isn't he speaking British? <laughs> it, was, it, it worked for me. Um. Okay, so Captain Bly is a bastard, and <laughs> <laughs> and yep. you know what got me is okay, so he did terrible things to his crew. 
And what got me was, Chris, what you were talking about a second ago is the, the fact that once they, the mutiny happened and they put them in those uh, lifeboats and they set them adrift and all they had was a map and a compass, that he was able to get, you know, m- most of the people that was with him. I assume a few of them died or whatever, but he got most of them 3,000 miles away and got them back to shore. He was a capable captain. Yeah, yeah. He just chose to be this other guy. <laughs> you know, he he chose to be the guy that... Uh, starved his men and, and punished them for the smallest infraction and and stuff like that. But uh, now the 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 stuff like flogging a dead man and uh, kill hauling, there's no documentation that that actually ever happened, you know. But for the story purposes, to make him seem even more evil, you know, it was necessary to show. Yeah, we're gonna whip this man until he dies, and then we're gonna keep whipping him. <laughs> well, he was dead before they started whipping him. And that's even more telling because you'd think, well, what's the point? Well, the point is even death doesn't let you escape the punishment. So everybody watch. Right. Because it's going to happen no matter what. And I thought that was amazing. Well, this was also a time when, you know, crazy stuff like if if a person committed suicide, that was considered a capital offense. And so they would hang the body. Yeah. You know, they did. They, yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> And uh, making a man climb a mast and just sit up there for hours at a time during a really bad storm. And, you know, Bly was doing worse things himself than the things that he was punishing people for. Because he was, he was actually stealing himself. He was stealing food and stuff like that. And having uh, Christian wanting him to sign off on the movement of stock that never actually happened and... And things like that's where, you know, Christian said, no, I'm not going to do this. And and the whole animosity between the two the two men started. But um, I've had I've had bosses like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that it, too. it rained. It rained true to me. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the whole deal was that they were they were on a mission to go to Tahiti to gather a bunch of breadfruit fruit trees, which I don't even know what breadfruit is. I've never heard of it. But um they were taking them back to the West Indies because it was supposed to be cheap food to, to give to slaves and stuff like that. So they go to Tahiti and they collect all these breadfruit trees. And um, one of the men tells the captain that they don't have enough water to keep these plants watered. So he says, we're going to take water from the men to, to put in the plants. And then, you know, and then we, what finally sets Christian off is when he's got men locked in irons for, basically nothing you know Mm -hmm. and then uh and and so he decides that he's going to uh to mutiny and it seemed kind of strange somebody brought up mutiny and he said don't say that we're not going to do that and then two seconds later it's like okay yeah let's do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's funny because they do paint christian as the hero here but he was really on board with the mutiny after he had an ulterior motive Mm -hmm. and that ulterior motive had nice hips and beautiful hair and was yeah. in a tropical paradise waiting to have his baby. So I, I it, it's funny that they structured the movie like that because it takes some of Christian's integrity away. He suddenly has things better to look forward to. Therefore, mutiny becomes an option. The whole rest of the movie he's saying, like you said, Sean, it, you know, this is the rules. He's the captain. We don't have to like it. We don't have to agree with it, but we have to obey the order. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll yell at him. I'll fight him. I'll call him a scoundrel to his face or whatever. But it's only when he's got 
uh, bluer, what's it, the broader horizons, greener pastures, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> that he says, yeah, okay, mutiny, yeah, sure, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they, they, they return to Tahiti, and they live there for a few months, and then the the Pandora shows up, and Bly is coming back and, and looking for them, so they get back on the bounty and take off looking for another island, and then they eventually land on uh Pitcairn. Pitcairn, Pit yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what Where there are. are still descendants from the bo- the bounty mutineers to this day living there. There, there really? absolutely wow. are. Yeah. 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 I was gonna know that. bring that up a little bit. They actually see, they ended the movie here. It stuff that happened after that because what 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 you don't know is that the um the mutineers kind of turned the Tahitians that went with them into slaves and they yeah. kind of they kind of passed the women around between them and stuff like that. They and were still ter- colonial English assholes. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I thought that was funny when when they showed up on the island and the natives were so excited that these Englishmen were there. I'm like, mm, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know how. <laughs> Have you seen the miniseries Hawaii? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they um. But there, yeah, there are people on that island now that are descendants of uh, Christian, and, that, and like four other guys were actually they eventually were murdered by some of the Tahitians. And uh, but there was a uh, I don't know if it was Christian's son or his grandson that uh, kind of became the the leader for a long time. And when society found them again, there were like fifty people living on the island. They were all descendants, and then there was like one guy that was still there that was a original mutineer. And at the height of their population, I think in the uh, in the nineteen sixties, there was maybe two hundred and thirty something people living there. And some of them have uh, moved off to Australia and New Zealand and stuff like that. But there are people still living on the island. So, okay, breadfruit is a species of flowering tree in the mulberry and jackfruit family. Uh, it gets its name from the texture of the moderately ripe fruit when cooked, similar to freshly baked bread and having a potato-like flavor. Oh, okay. Hmm. <laughs> Cheap carbs for your slave labor. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. while we're talking about uh, arboreal things, there was one thing in this movie that I have to point out. Again, because I live in Florida, I grew up in Florida, we had a freaking coconut palm in our backyard, and those things are annoying as hell. Because if you're not familiar with coconuts, um, when they're on the tree or when, when they fall off the tree and you have to pick them up in your yard, they're not that nice little brown, fuzzy Monty Python thing you get at the store. Mm-hmm. A coconut in its husk is a little bit bigger than a bowling ball. And... uh I was impressed that they, they showed them they, – they didn't, like, cut them all out of the husk. They just kind of hacked the top off a coconut. But the scene where where one of the, the Tahitians walk, goes up to the, the, the guy and she gives him a, a coconut and, and – or the dude – no, that's a guy that tells him to, to – and he drinks it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's milk. They've got cows here that lay eggs. Yeah. <laughs> The stuff that's inside of a coconut is called coconut milk, but you would never, ever, ever mistake it for actual milk. It's no. just really sweet water. Yeah, coconut <laughs> juice, basically. <Yeah. laughs> Troy, what did you what, what what would you rate this movie overall? 
Um, again, out of out of five, I'd get out of like five mutineers. Um, I'd give it. Uh, I'd give it three. Um, I really liked uh, Charles Lart. Charles Lawton and Clark Gable in their roles. I thought Clark Gable did an amazing, an amazing job. Um, kind of slowly starting to see what kind of guy that this captain was, and starting to planting the seeds of the mutiny and all that. But to me, they were the only ones that were really memorable in that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I couldn't tell you anybody else's name. Uh, actor or character name um so yeah on on that i would give it i'd give it a three okay all right chris what about you i'm gonna give it a solid three and a half i really enjoyed it on almost every level i just wish that it had grabbed me narratively a bit more but aside from that i have no complaints i enjoyed watching it and i don't know if it had the better captain kirk speech at the end if it was better than the Great Dictator, but it was a pretty good Captain Kirk speech at the end, and I really liked <laughs> Byam's delivery of it. And that was another thing that really shocked me when he came out of the cell and the knife was pointing at him, meaning they were all condemned mm-hmm. to die. I was that that made me go, oh man! I really thought that they were going to get off because Bly was such an obvious douche. But again, it shows you like the rule of law and the power of tradition. And how sometimes you have to do something to, to to break that cycle. And according to the the prologue of this movie, this is the straw that broke that camel's back. It's what changed everything in the Royal Navy. I don't think there were press gangs or anything like that anymore after this. So it, I, I don't know why it shocked me. It probably shouldn't have given everything that led up to it. But it was a really neat moment. So, yeah, a, a definite three and a half stars. I think people should see this one. So the, the king ended up pardoning by him yeah but all the rest of those guys still got killed right yep yeah yeah <laughs> that's what i thought i was like you know what that... because some animals are more equal than others sean yeah, yeah. yeah. well by was wasn't dark. a mutineer though <laughs> well Byam yeah. stayed loyal to to bligh he just was had gotten knocked out and was in the in the, the bottom of the boat or the ship rather uh Otherwise, he'd have been trying to get on the on the boat with bligh so well, those other guys did too they were they were trying to get on the boat and Christian wouldn't let him because he said the boat's full, you can't go. You mm. know, so and so they ended up getting killed. <laughs> they ended up hanging, and you know they were not really part of the mutiny. Uh, they just had to go along with it because they couldn't they couldn't leave. So, <laughs> uh, Rick, what what what's your your rating? I give this one a four, and the only reason I don't give it a five is Bly was a little bit over the top, too cruel. Just for narrative purposes, mm-hmm. um, I you know I give it a pass because even at its two hours and five minute running time, um, you know for that time period, longer movies was was you know that was the the the, the convention. Uh, but even that, you know, even given that amount of time, it's still not enough time to tell the whole story. So, you know, there has to be some shorthand, some condensation. Uh, And I think they did a really great job of showing the nuance in Fletcher Christian. Um, But there wasn't, until he was in, you know, cast adrift in the boat, uh, there really wasn't a whole lot of nuance to Bly. Uh, So that keeps it from being a five. 
in my book, but definitely a four. Uh, good, solid film. I loved how they didn't pull any punches at the end. They didn't, you know, they didn't feel the need to show any hangings or anything like that. Uh, I was amazed that they showed the keel hauling, to be perfectly frank. Uh, because at the time, you know, that kind of sensational violence just wasn't done. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I think it's a solid film. I It perfectly makes sense why they've been trying to recapture it for 70 years now. Uh, but as is often the case with a movie that's done so almost perfectly the first time, you're just not going to catch that lightning in a bottle again. So, yeah. All right. I think I, I'll give it. A, I'll give it a four, and basically for the same reasons that you said about Bly being a little over over the top. Because you know the kill hauling scene. If you don't know what kill hauling is, that's where you tie a rope to a guy and you run the rope underneath the boat over to the other side and you throw him off and you drag him across the bottom of the boat and he hits all the barnacles and everything and basically it kills him. I mean, if it doesn't kill him, he's going to be seriously injured. And yeah, it wasn't like, always fatal, but yeah, yeah. it was if, not if, good. If, if you didn't have like head trauma from hitting the bottom of the boat and stuff like that, but or drown. But um, the, the infraction that the guy had done is basically like he tried to wash his knees or something like that. It was, it was something yeah. stupid. So, I mean, that's basically murder. You're murdering your men for, for no reason. So I, I, I think that that goes a little bit un- unbelievable that the violence would get that bad. But I don't know. I didn't serve in the British Royal Navy. It may have. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I give it a four. I think it was a solid movie. I, I enjoyed it, but. I have some facts about the movie. I do too. Uh, <laughs> you do. Yeah. Let me, uh, hold on. Let me. Find. Okay. So uh, James Cagney was sailing his boat off the Catalina off of Catalina Island, California. Catalina Island is where they filmed all the Tahiti scenes, and uh, he passed the area where the film's crew was shooting, and uh, he went to the director Frank Lloyd who was an old friend and said that he was on vacation and could use a couple of bucks and asked if he had any work. So, uh, Cagney actually played an extra in this movie and you can see him in a couple of scenes at the beginning of the movie. Clark Gable was initially disappointed when, uh, Franchot Tone, who was, was cast as by him. The two actors had been bitter rivals for the affections of Joan Crawford while filming dancing lady in 1933. And they <laughs> did not like each other at all. However, during filming, Gable surprisingly became close friends with Tone when they discovered a mutual interest in alcohol and women, both of which were abundantly available in Avalon, where they were uh, filming some of the Catalina scenes. Uh, the Bounty and the Pandora were actual life-size ships that were built from two old wooden schooners. The builders added outer ribs and frames to the holes to get the correct width after replanking them, added concrete inside as a, as a ballast. Then they were given three masts and rigged in an authentic 18th century style. A 27-foot-long model was uh, burned at the end of the film. It was an exact replica of the ship, but it was one-fifth of its actual size. Uh, Clark Gable had to shave off his mustache for the movie because nobody in the Royal Navy of the time had a mustache. And let's see. Should have kept it off. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Clark Gable and Charles Lawton were... Uh, cast together in the hope that they would hate each other, making their on-screen sparring more lifelike. Uh, they knew that Gable was a notorious homophobe, 
and would not care for Lawton's overt homosexuality and would feel inferior to the RADA-trained Shakespearean actor. Relations between the two stars broke down completely after Lawton brought his muscular boyfriend to the island as his personal masseur. They were obviously a devoted couple and would go everywhere together, and Gable would turn away in disgust. In addition, I love that story. <laughs> in addition, Lawton felt that he should have won the Best Actor Oscar for Barrett's of Wimpole Street. Uh, he was not nominated because the award went to Gable for It Happened One Night. And also, before Clark Gable found out that Lawton was uh, was gay, he took him to a brothel. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, Lawton wasn't interested in that. <laughs> so, um, but well, the best part to. of that, the best part of that story is that Lawton was married to Elsa Lanchester. Yeah, Lan- Lanchester. Yeah, who played the Bride of Frankenstein? Uh, I'm sure she did other stuff. That's the only thing I know her from. Uh, yeah. But she thought that was hilarious. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, the, the, at, at the time in Hollywood, marriages of convenience were not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no way, you know, Lawton was very openly gay, which I didn't realize until I was reading the trivia for this movie. Uh, and Gable was like one of those guys who was so homophobic. He actually did not like his costume because he felt the, the knee breeches made him look effeminate. Oh boy. <laughs> so, the stockings and all that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and this kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning. I always thought Lawton was kind of an asshole. But it turns out he was the guy that was always trying to cheer people up because this was a rough fit, a rough shoot. Uh, you know, they were working long hours. They were on location for four months. Um, and Lawton was always, you know, singing songs and trying to cheer people up and stuff. And Gable was just like, I want to drink and whore. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Lawton was actually the cool dude on the on the shoot. That's uh, funny. Right. Anybody have anything else? We'll move on to the next one. No. Next and last movie is uh, Stagecoach from 1939, starring John Wayne, Claire Trevor, John Carradine, and uh, Thomas Mitchell. Directed Ugh. by John Ford. <laughs> directed <laughs> by John Ford, who we will eventually visit again because he direct- also directed The Grapes of Wrath. Um, a group of people traveling on a stagecoach find their journey complicated by the threat of Geronimo and learn something about each other in the process. Um, okay, so... Uh, I'll go ahead and start. This might be an unpopular opinion, but it might not be. This movie was fine. It wasn't great, you know. I w- I'm not a I'm not a western guy. I don't really like westerns that much, uh, and I'm not really a big John Wayne guy because mainly because my grandfather used to watch him all the time, and I got sick of seeing him. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but the movie was okay. I mean, there wasn't really anything about this movie that made me think that it needed to be on this list. Because nothing really happened. I mean, they're just they're riding on a stagecoach, and then and then there's some action in the last you know ten fifteen minutes of the movie. Finally, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I mean, for the most part, it's just it's it's the only western that I've ever ever seen where they talk that much, and, and nothing really ever happens. But uh, but I will uh, let you guys tell me what you think. Troy, what do you think? Well, you could tell by my grown as you were talking about it that i didn't like this movie at all um i was totally bored by it uh, because like you said nothing happens um and i think the only reason that it, it may be on this list is because a lot of people have since kind of taken that formula 
of yeah. of you know a group of people with nothing in common coming together and um yeah the hateful eight it reminded me of i mean i could yes. see where some of that stuff at the beginning of the hateful eight came from yes exactly and so that's the only reason i could see that this is on this list because the the performances were terrible i mean it's john wayne his performances are always terrible um, <laughs> he was Genghis Khan. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, have, have any of you watched that movie? Genghis Khan. No. I've seen bits it's, and pieces. It's called, it's called The Conqueror, and oh my god, you've got to watch it just to see how unbelievably awful it is. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine. But and, and and I mean, I'm I'm actually a fan of westerns. Um, you know, I I enjoy them. You know, I. You know, I live in Utah, so a lot of westerns have been filmed here, um, mm, and yeah. so it's it's kind of kind of cool to see. But man, this movie sucked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, what did you think? Oh, um, it surprised me in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm not going to say it was good, but I understand kind of why it was on the list. I know that John Ford is a legendary director of westerns, and I know The Searchers is probably his quote masterpiece maybe oh, this makes was a lot of sense now yeah maybe this is something that led up to something like that because some of the shots in this were just stunning just beautiful cinematography so i can see where like troy was saying maybe this set a lot of the groundwork for uh western tropes that were to come that were to be done to death i didn't know what to expect because like most of you guys I don't like John Wayne. I never understood John Wayne's appeal or the mystique that surrounds him as an actor. He seems to come to me. What you were saying earlier, Rick, how some actors had stock lines that everybody wants to hear them say. Yeah. John Wayne comes from a time in Hollywood where actors had a certain affect. And no matter who they were playing, people wanted to see that affect. And this was maybe the earliest John Wayne film I've ever seen because – it's almost like before he becomes a parody of himself. That affect is still gelling a little bit. And I, I, I found him a bit more genuine than I was expecting in this. But I think that's also a side, a side effect of what really surprised me about this film. I was expecting just like stock Western characters. And it seems that the script really went out of its way to try to give you a group of disparate personalities and try to play them off one another. So I I liked it for that. I just don't think it was particularly good. Um, It was intriguing in places, and it was beautifully shot. But if I never, ever see freaking, what is it, Andy Devine again. With a doggy like this. (laughs) That is nonsense. And I guess that's, again, with that same thing, because apparently I was looking this up. He played Roy Rogers' sidekick cookie yeah. or something like that for like 10 or 11 yeah. movies doing that same sh- same shtick and i loved right. it when pat bertram does it as mr haney on green acres <laughs> but i guess that's my limit um the only person that i really genuinely enjoyed in this film was thomas mitchell but that's because he's in a million things and he's uncle billy and it's a wonderful life so i thought that he was he was the one actor that was really terrific just like hands down terrific in the film and burton churchill as the banker was also like a magnificent bastard like he was old man potter level evil and i think it really worked so all right rick what'd you think 
I did not hate this movie. Um, I did not like this movie. Uh, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, l- like we've all said, it, okay, it started off okay. I felt the introduction of all the characters was organic. It didn't feel forced or, or uh, contrived. Uh, you know, everybody on this journey made sense to be there. Um, but then we had, you know, so we had what, 20 minutes of, of good establishing stuff and, and setting up our, our, uh, we have our MacGuffin, we have our scenario, and then we have 45 minutes of let's go to this town. Oh no, let's go to this town. Oh no, let's cross this river. Oh no. <laughs> Geronimo might get us someday, eventually, maybe. I don't know. Are we ever going to see? <laughs> uh, and then, you know, the last 15 minutes of the film is, is, uh, you know, really well done. Like Chris said, it's beautifully shot. It's almost a shame it's black and white. Um, I, you know, I think John Ford is truly a visual auteur. Or was, I guess. Uh, I'm assuming he's dead by now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm not sure why it stands out. Now, I, I will say, I spent most of the movie uh, saying to myself that this must be where all the tropes come from, so it's not fair to judge it on that. Because, damn, they didn't leave a single Western trope unturned. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, I went and it, did some research on it and found out, no, this was not in any way the the original Western. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Westerns had been around for a long time. In fact, they were on the way out when when Ford made this movie. So it doesn't get a break. You know, I used to I used to say that, I, you know, you, you go back and watch I Love Lucy and you spend half your time going, I've seen that joke a million times. But then you have to go, oh, that's where it came from. And everybody else was copying that. You know, yeah. or the Dick Van Dyke yeah. show or, you know, it's like when people tell me that Star Trek The Next Generation is so much superior to TOS. I'm like, well, look, that's like saying your 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 grandfather is a douchebag because your dad was so much better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. w- without your dad, you wouldn't have, your, you know, without your grandpa, you wouldn't have your dad. Without TOS, you wouldn't have TNG. Um, but this doesn't fall into that category. I, at least I didn't. I found that out afterwards. And I'm glad I did, because otherwise I might have hated it. Um, uh, at, you know, in my notes, I, I wrote down it's a TARDIS because oh, yeah. but then <laughs> I, I decided how they all fit bigger it's on the pl- inside. It's a clown car. <laughs> it's, it's like how many people are you gonna fit in that damn thing? Yeah, John Wayne yeah, was sitting John on Wayne the was sit- yeah, yeah he was sitting on the floor. floor. Yeah, and at that point, <laughs> it was like, all right, you know, if he had if if, if he had been like, all right, scoot over, I'd be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I didn't I like find... when they when he just kind of threw his saddle up on top and it barely sat there and he just left it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got a kick out of the, they kept calling him the kid and he was 30 something at the time he made that he movie. 38. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I agree with you guys. I've never been a huge John Wayne fan. I think in the right role, he's great, but yeah, he was not an actor. He was a movie star, you know, kind of like, I, I hate to say Harrison Ford because Harrison Ford can do a great job, but Harrison Ford kind of fell into being Harrison Ford eventually. Um, yeah. You know, there were a lot of people that that 
you'd put him in a role because it was it was a Clark Gable role or it was a Cary Grant role or it was a, a John Wayne role and they just read the lines as themselves. Um but yeah, there was a little bit of vulnerability in him. Um I liked what's her name? Dallas? Louise no, no, no. Uh, yeah, Dallas. Oh there she is. She's at the top. Claire Trevor. Yep. Who, yeah, Claire Trevor. You know it's funny, this movie and and Mutiny on the Bounty, that uh French named dude, the guy that played by him <laughs> and Claire Trevor in this, they were like apparently big stars at the time who have completely faded into the into the uh, background of history. Mm. Uh, because she was she was the major star of that movie. Yeah, yeah, she was the one that she was the main main build star. And I was so unimpressed with her. I mean, I she didn't do a bad job, but she was just kind of there. Uh, I thought that uh, Louise Platt was stunning. Um, and how the hell do you know a woman isn't nine and a half months pregnant? Yeah, even that in was a little bit of a stretch, right? <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. They did not make her look pregnant at all. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, overall, it was fine. It it just, it, it moved slowly. I liked how everybody was a, was a, a, a fully realized character uh, and not just some stereotype. I kept wanting to compare it to uh, the Canterbury Tales, but it never really got to that level. Um but well, uh, the Canterbury Tales is more of a, of a framing device, exactly. For individual yeah. stories, and this was about what was going on in the caravan. Yeah, so we never we never yeah. found out anything about these people. Right. I did find it very interesting that uh, the 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 banker, um, what was his name? Burton Churchill. Churchill. Yeah, Gatewood. Gatewood. His speech about there should be a a, a businessman in the as president. <laughs> it's amazing that that talk was going on as far back as then. Sure. Um, you know, that was kind of prescient. Uh, but overall, I, you know, it wasn't bad. It just was trite. And I, I kind of, the only reason I think it's on this list is because it was, it was Wayne's breakout role. This was the, this was the movie. Cause I, I read a piece of trivia that said it was his 80th movie. I'm like, no effing way. Yeah. Yeah, it was his 80th his movie, but it's his breakout role. Yeah. yeah. And then I went to his IMDb and I'm like, damn, it was. Yeah. Yeah, because um um Ford and and John Wayne were were good friends. And John Wayne had been trying to get him to put him in one of his movies for like 10 years and he didn't he wouldn't do it. He said not until you're ready, not until you're ready because when he put him in this movie, he knew that this movie was going to make him a big star. And he did. He became a major, a major Hollywood player after that. And uh, and that's that shot when they first introduced John Wayne. That's the one good thing I can say about this movie. That shot mm. was pretty spectacular. Yeah, <laughs> when he's uh, uh, spinning the the rifle around and they just zoom in on him like that. That was a pretty good shot. <laughs> I'll give this movie credit for not being as horribly racist as I expected it to be, but it was still pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I have a question. Why do people yell Geronimo when they jump out of airplanes? Nobody knows. <laughs> I have researched this, literally. I've tried to find out. Nobody knows. It's it's like in, in theater, uh, the room that actors hang out in before they go on stage is called a green room. Mm-hmm. And you'll find a million theories why, but nobody knows for sure. 
And the Geronimo thing is just one of those things that no, there is no recorded evidence of why Geronimo is what people yell before they jump out of a plane. Maybe like, because was he, a, was he a skydiving Native American? <laughs> <laughs> it is on that long O. So Geronimo. Yeah, <laughs> I've jumped out of planes twice. I've never yelled Geronimo. I'll try it right. if I ever go do it again. I'll I'll do it just for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do we rate this? I'm gonna I'm gonna rate this. Uh, Two and a half. So, I mean, middle of the road. The, the, some, the characters were good. I mean, I liked Thomas Mitchell. I mean, his that joke of him drinking the guy's whiskey. I mean, he, and like trying to be sneaky about it, but not being sneaky about it at all. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that made me laugh. And uh, and some of the other characters, I thought I thought were pretty good. But overall, I thought that this movie was just a bunch of people going somewhere. <laughs> And they should have named it that. <laughs> so I say two and a half. So Troy, what, what, what about you? One. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I was watching this on on YouTube, and I thought that I had gotten pretty far in it. I looked, and I still had over an hour, and I was genuinely depressed. <laughs> it was devastating. <laughs> Alright, Chris, what about you? I'm gonna give it two stars. I wanna say that it's, it's capably made, beautifully shot, and the characters surprised me for what they weren't, but at the same time, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. Whereas I might recommend The Great Dictator. Um, this one, I would say, I guess if you like westerns, maybe give it a shot, but if you don't, there's absolutely nothing here to recommend, except for maybe a couple of beautiful shots. And you can see those in a clip reel. <laughs> All right, Rick, what about you? Yeah, I... I uh, uh, see, a lot of my problems with this film have to do with things that were acceptable in 1935 that aren't now. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's... It, I would... I would if it wasn't for the way that Native Americans and Mexicans were treated and the number of horses killed, literally killed, yeah. because they use yeah. a thing called a running Y to get them to fall right. down like that, which is it, it's literally a cable attached to the front of the horse that's attached to a spike in the ground. And then the stuntman mm-hmm. just rides the horse full on until it runs out of cable. And then the horse gets pulled down. And... So many horses got broken legs from that and had to be killed. Uh, this is one of the reasons why there are, uh, you know, why the ASPCA, uh, why you see that rating after, you know, in a lot of movies, like no animals were hurt because mm-hmm. they used to kill horses left and right doing this stuff. Uh, I remember, you know, while I was watching that final battle, which made no freaking sense, someone actually asked John Ford, why didn't they just shoot the horses? And he's like, because then we wouldn't have had a movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 the Native Americans were just, they, they, they might as well have been Imperial stormtroopers. They were just I was thinking the same targets. things. <laughs> <laughs> and they had really bad aim. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, at least I, I had to give them credit because at first it seemed like the only people reloading were the Indians. <laughs> and then finally right. everybody on the stagecoach ran out of wep- any ammunition. I was like, damn, they must have crates of ammo on that thing. Where are they hiding them? <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't 
give it that much of a forgiveness. I, I know it was the time, but still the, the pacing is awful. Uh, I honestly don't know why this movie is on this list. Uh, and I, I'll say it up front. I saw the searchers. Uh, I think it's even worse than this one. So I, maybe I'm just not a for a fan of Ford, but I, I give it a, I'll give it a one and a half. <laughs> okay. All right. I have some facts. Um, some of them we've already talked about, but uh, Orson Welles argued that Stagecoach was a perfect textbook of filmmaking. Yeah, he was and a claimed to, <laughs> yeah, and claimed <laughs> to have watched the film more than forty times in preparation of making Citizen Kane. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and Rick, you call it a running Y. This this had it written as a running W. Uh, a device known as a running W was used on the Indians' horses during the sequence where they are chasing the stagecoach. Strong, thin wires fixed to a metal post. Then the other end of the wires are attached to an iron clamp that encircles the legs of the horse. The post is anchored into the ground. The horse is then ridden at full gallop, and when the wire's maximum length is is reached, just when the rider is shot, quote-unquote, the animal's legs are jerked out from underneath it, causing it to tumble violently and throw the, quote-unquote, shot rider off. The trouble is that the rider knew when the horse was going to fall, but the horse didn't resulting in many horses either being killed outright or having to be destroyed because of broken limbs incurred during the falls. Can, uh, can, the use can of... I revise my rating? I had no <laughs> yeah. idea that this was a thing. You know what? F- this movie. Nobody should watch this movie. <laughs> I don't. I, I seriously doubt that this is the only movie that did that. This, it's this the only movie pretty... I've ever seen that did it. Yeah. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm actually sick right now. They eventually discontinued this after many complaints from both inside and outside the film industry. So evidently it was common practice back then to wow. just kill horses to get a good shot. <laughs> so, uh, hmm. it's like when we, when we were talking about, um, uh, what's the movie that me and Troy hated so much that Chris liked on the last show? Fill my arms with Heather. Yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they said or, that they, uh, the ring heights. Yeah, Wuthering Heights. Didn't, didn't they say they removed the geese's uh, voice boxers or something like that because they wanted to have them around, but they didn't want to make any noise? Yeah, but I mean, the geese weren't like brutally murdered so that they could get a quote shot. You know what I mean? I mean, the, the yeah. geese could still lay eggs. It's still, and I'm sorry, a geese is uh, a goose is is meat. A horse is on a different level, as far as I'm concerned. I I don't know that that makes me a hypocrite, but just. It seems unnecessarily cruel to do that to an animal that has a lot of value. And, yeah. And, and uh, oh, oh, wow. That really just got my goat. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. All right. I killed sorry. the sorry. goat with a running W. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Troy. And Troy found well, the funny. Congratulations, sir. <laughs> Golf clap. And uh, even though this is considered his breakout role, this was John Wayne's 80th film. Uh, the interior sets all have ceilings, an unusual practice at the time for studio filming. This was to create a claustrophobic effect in complete counterpoint to the wide open expanse of Monument Valley where they were filming the outdoor scenes. Uh, Thomas Mitchell had stopped drinking alcohol more than two years before he played Doc Boone. Uh, I got to give him credit for for playing drunk realistically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know he wasn't doing a Foster Brooks or or a Dean Martin kind of over the top. I I believe that dude was hammered. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
1939, Claire Trevor was the film's biggest star and commanded the highest salary. The six-sheet poster declares a powerful story of nine strange people and featured headshots from the coach's nine passengers, but mistakenly, instead of putting John Ford's picture on it, they put his brother Francis Ford, and they completely omitted Burton Churchill, who played the banker. Um, John Wayne's famous rifle is a Winchester Model 1892, which would not be introduced until 12 years after this movie was set. <laughs> and it's understandable that in 1939, pregnancy was not a subject for movies. However, it's noticeable that Lucy Mallory, who is about to have a baby, wears a tight-waisted dress and shows no sign of being <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> Because I, you know, uh, at some point I was like, "Are they trying to say she's pregnant?" I'm like, "Nah, she's like skinny." Well, it was, <laughs> I mean, pregnant. the scene when she has the baby and you can hear the baby, I was like, "I didn't even know she was pregnant." And, and okay, uh, Sean, I know you would. You and I are parents. Are either you other guys' parents? Nope, not me. A baby would not stay quiet during that whole freaking firefight. <laughs> no, no, uh. Uh-uh. Not just a baby. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be hard to get a child of any age, yeah. All what right, I want to so know is why was Dallas holding the baby during the firefight while the mother was crouched down with her hands over her ears? I, I think it was, was it was uh, trying to show how absolutely freaking useless she was. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I get depression. it. <laughs> but there were was, there was some long shots before they went to the close-up of Lucy in the carriage where you saw that she was actually crouched down a few with hands over her ears. There was sort of a medium shot that showed the entire carriage where they're shooting out of it. And she's in the right-hand window. And it seriously looks like she's just staring out the window bored out of her skull. <laughs> yeah. They're in the middle of the climactic battle of the movie. It was it just took me right out of it. I was like, wow, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> now that you you did just remind me of one thing in this movie that did impress me. Uh the fact that uh Hatfield was about to shoot Mallory, uh Mrs. Mallory, rather than let the Indians get her. I hmm. thought that was that that showed real cojones for that time of movie making. Yeah, yeah, and they, uh, and then all these movies that we talked about tonight were pre-code movies, so they 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 got away with a lot more in the 30s than they would have later on in the 50s uh, when the Hayes Code took effect and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, but it still pulled its punch. I mean, there was well, yeah. Deus Ex Calvary, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, one, one thing... Did I say Calvary? <laughs> <laughs> one thing all three of these movies had in common is that their directors had to fight like hell to get them made. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. Even Chaplin? Yeah, uh... Well, you may... Okay, maybe not. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, yeah, because you guys said that he wrote, directed, financed everything, right? So yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. The guy that directed uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, he bought the rights to the book himself, and then like basically rented the rights back to the studio so that, so they could so that he could make sure that he was the one that got to make the movie. Um, That's smart. So. That is, uh, that's all of our movies for tonight. Uh, next month, we're going to continue on the list and we're going to do number 88, which is The African Queen from 1951, starring Humphrey Bogart, that's Catherine a great Hepburn, movie. and directed by John Huston, which I think that'll be the third directed by John Huston movie that we have done. 
Uh, number 87 is Goodwill Hunting from 1997. Another good starring movie. Starring Robin Williams and Matt Damon, directed by Gus Van Sant. And Ben Affleck, don't forget him. They won an Oscar for writing it. Yeah, for writing, yeah. But Affleck was in it too. <laughs> he was in it. He was in it, yeah. Uh, and then number 86, uh, Terms of Endearment from 1983. Oh, starring Shirley MacLaine, Deborah Winger, Jack Nicholson, Danny DeVito, and directed by James L. Brooks. So You're on your own on that one, dude. That, yeah, that is, that is going to be our <laughs> September show. I, and I have an idea, and I'm probably going to put this on the website for a vote, but our, for our October show... I think we're going to take a break from the IMDb list, and we're going to do some classic horror. Nice. And I'm I'm thinking like like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Ooh, I'm there. Dracula, Frankenstein, that kind of stuff. And I'll put I'll put six or seven movies up on the uh, <laughs> Facebook page, and I'll let the listeners vote which three they want us to do. So, uh, so we'll do that. And uh, but that's that's going to be it. Uh, Chris, thank you for being here. Let everybody know where they can find you. Uh, they can find me at quantumleappodcast.com. That's where you can get the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also find my own stuff at my website at deflipside.com. That's T-E-F-L-I-P-S-I-D-E.com. I do some radio segments there. I have some fiction for sale there, so please go check it out. Check it all out. All right. And, Rick, thank you for being here. My pleasure as always. And other than winning every episode of Captain Game Show, where can where can people find you? <laughs> I've lost a couple of times. <laughs> uh, go over to simplysyndicated.com. Uh, I'm on Starbase 66. And, uh, well, the, the movie news show is gone now. I don't know what we're calling the new thing. Uh, we haven't done it yet. Uh, and the seventh Chevron. Uh, and uh, I also occasionally show up in Cosmic Potato from time to time. All right. And, Troy, thank you as well. Yep, no problem. And where can they? Where can everybody find you? Uh, you can find my podcast, World War G, uh, right here on CosmicPotato.com or at WorldWarG.Podbean.com. And so uh, thank you all for listening, and be sure to join us next time on Cosmic Potato, the Super Fan Talk podcast, when you might hear John say, So I designed this psychedelic-looking T-shirt with like a Klingon symbol on it, and above the symbol it says, Today is a good day to tie-dye. You are so lucky you're not here, Irons. (laughs) That made me mad. (laughs) I got a good chuckle. Be sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can contact us by email at mail at cosmicpotato.com or send us a voicemail or text message to 205-642-8380. Help the show grow by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you for joining us for Cosmic Potato, the Super Fan Talk podcast.